1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. My very distinguished guests today are Sally and Richard Price, authors most recently of Samaka Dreaming with Duke University Press in 2017. This remarkable book looks back on their initial encounter over 50 years ago with the Samaka Maroons of Suriname, drawing from their research notes, memories, recordings, and photographs, and tells the story of how they learned to live with and write about the people and of the place itself, and of the ways their work and the history of the place eventually became intertwined. I welcomed the opportunity to speak with both of them for this interview. Please be aware that the sound quality suffers in spots, and I apologize about that. I hope you enjoy it nonetheless. Richard, Sally, thank you so much for joining me today. Our pleasure. So uh, this is a book about a place and a group of people that you've been working with in some way or another for 50 years. Um, can you go back to the moment when you decided that this was the place that you were going to work in?
0: Sure. Um, we had done a good bit of fieldwork as anthropologists among your students. Uh, I first, in Peru, when I was a sophomore at Harvard, Uh, In the summer after that, I went up in the Andes in the Vicos Project that was run by Cornell University. And uh, that's when I really decided I wanted to be an anthropologist. I had taken a freshman seminar with Claude Kluckon that had gotten me interested, and I went on from there. Um, After that summer, uh, I was able to get a fellowship to do a summer in Martinique uh, in a fishing village right near where we live today and uh, the following summer after I graduated, Sally and I got married and we went back there to Martinique together we spent four months there before we went to Paris for a uh, graduate study before coming back to Harvard to finish up uh, graduate work and during that time, and then we went to uh, join while we were in uh, Paris here. We worked in Andalusia together, wrote some articles about that. Each time we were writing up our work, publishing it. And uh, after, the, the, after that, we then went to Chapas in Mexico as part of the Harvard Chapas project and worked with Zinacateco Indians. And it was only uh, during my first year of graduate school at Harvard when I started working with Sid Mintz, who was at MIT visiting, um, that we made the decision that where we really wanted to work permanently was in Afro-America somewhere. And as we read more and more, it seemed to us that uh, the Maroons of were would be the most exciting place to go and spend time so that's what we did
1: So um, why this book now? You've written many books articles, monographs novels, put together exhibits. How does this book fit in with everything else that you've done?
2: Well, we went back in our minds to the very early experiences that we had with all of us which is kind of a a follow up to all the other things that we've been writing and we decided to uh, dig back into our file cabinets and find the notes that we had written in between 1966 and 1968, mainly, also some from the 1970s. Um, and it was kind of mind blowing. You know, we revived the day to day experiences that we had with people uh, we'd come to be very close with. Um, and in the book, we try very hard to recreate. Uh, the experience of, of being in that situation, not as a nostalgic uh, return to some, you know, dreamscape, but but really um, going into the relationships that we had with all our neighbors and the, the things that we participated in, the way that we wrote field notes, which was sort of interesting to see, you know, how, how the field notes were... Um, written out in terms of, of making things explicit or um, including things that were just understood. Um, so we tried to recreate that experience. Uh, it, it was very moving for us.
1: It, it's a, a... The book does that really successfully, I think. You get a real sense of your learning curve and the kinds of things that you encountered and didn't know about and eventually got more comfortable with. But at the same time, there's a kind of layering. Um, and you open with a quote about haunting. And I wonder if you can talk about why you did that and what what the haunting refers to.
0: Well, that's, that was a late uh, addition. I think that uh, we have a very special relationship to this place and those years because uh, 20 years after we began our field work in 1966 uh, we were expelled from the country by the dictatorship and we've never been able to go back to that place to that country we've continued working with the Samaka people uh, but in neighboring French Guiana not in the Republic of Suriname able to go to French Guiana but not to Suriname. And that started in 1986, which is about 30, more than 30 years ago. So um, all in all, this place where we, where we lived in Dongoho, the village we lived in that region where we lived and visited over a period of 20 years, uh, is a kind of greenscape for us. So going back It's very special, and it does haunt us in all sorts of ways
1: today. So I found the book a little bit difficult to place genre-wise. It's a memoir, it's an ethnography, and it's also a kind of reflective commentary on your own work, over the years and, your, and the, the place of your work in the general literature. So I, I'm wondering if you deliberately wrote it that way so as to elude categorization. I,
2: I take it as a compliment that it doesn't fit.
1: <laughs> <into> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely.
2: Category. I think uh, you know, the most interesting books uh, don't.
0: I think many of our books uh, are like that. That they are cross categories. The so-called novel we wrote certainly is, and was taken as such. Uh, and I think I remember Marshall Sullen's writing a review in the New York, in the uh, Sunday New York Times book review of a book that we wrote in the '90s called Equatoria, where the fact that it, you know, didn 't fit into a genre bothered him he said he felt like he was being jerked around or something like that so we like that we like that
2: there's a difference between uh, expectations in the United States and in France in France it's much stronger uh, for people to want to categorize a book well is this a book of essays is this a, book of, uh, is this a monograph and so on the French are really very strong in Wanting to categorize like that, but I think in the United States,
1: it's not true. Really I uh, I really enjoyed it, and I feel like it gives us permission to write in a in ways that are more creative and more kind of evocative in different sorts of ways. So I I very much appreciate that.
0: Well, we we've always tried to write, I think, in ways that are break genres and that are evocative in different ways, different in, in different books.
1: Yeah. So um, to plunge into the book a little bit, and there's I don't think that we have time to really um, talk about all of the details of everything, but you chose to focus on uh, three individuals, Agbago, Kala, and Nai, And I wonder if you can just take some time to describe those individuals and why you chose to focus on them.
2: Well, one reason was that you had to have some kind of focus to this um, whole society of Many, many people that you're dealing with on a daily basis and so on. So um, Agago was the uh, supreme chief of the Samaka people. And he, uh, let's see, when we first went there, he must have been in his 80s, um, a very dignified uh, man, with a deep voice and, and a real authority. Um, and he essentially made the decision to allow us to, to live in South so he was very important in that and continued to have relations with him throughout their stay. Um, what he decided was that he wanted us to live in his natal village, which was a different from the village he lived in, um, and he arranged for us to have a house built um, right in front of the house that belonged to his older sister, who was well into her 90s, and that was I, who we also became extremely close to, Um, and there was another, uh, so this is a sibling set, the the Supreme Chief, uh, his elder sister, and then his uh, younger brother, Captain Kala, who was the captain of the area that we lived in, and that was a different kind of relationship. also. a very strong relationship, but uh, marked by moments of, of, of uh, contestation. And um, uh, maybe we should talk about him some more, because he was the one who, who
0: had to be. Uh Kala was a man uh, with whom I ate all my meals uh, under his house, often with uh, several other younger uh man, not younger than him, older than I, and uh, let's remember, when we started out, we were in our mid-twenties, and um, he was a man who uh, was very, sort of traditionally, Samara in that he had uh, a great fear and hostility toward anyone who was an outsider. And particularly towards white people, and who were traditionally the enemy of Samoans. Uh, Samoan identity is built on the idea of, of of the wars they fought against the whites for a hundred years during the late seventeenth and early eighteenth century until they made peace with the Dutch crown in the middle of the eighteenth century, and that spirit of uh, Battle and being warriors is something that's very, very important to someone. Almost every day, Captain Kala, who was not only the political chief, but the spiritual chief of the village, would go to the village ancestor shrine and pray. And when he prayed, he would always say, as part of his long prayers to the ancestors, "Um, I don't know what to do with these people. I don't know what to do if one of them died. I don't know how to bury a white person. And that was something he was very concerned about. Uh, he and I had a lot of uh, difficulties here and there. On the other hand, we ate all our meals together, we chatted about everything under the sun, except those things that were prohibited to outsiders. During the 1960s, for instance, I was not allowed to ask anything about. What Samakas called first time, that is the period of their wars, their wars against the whites. And I didn't. I obeyed pretty much what I was supposed to do. Um, it was only 10 years later that I not only got permission, but was asked by the Supreme Chief of the Samakas, Kala's older brother, Admako, um and others to begin to record their early history, because they feared that it would be uh, disappearing otherwise. And of course, Sally had other restrictions that were very, very important. And Kala was the one who watched every move that we made to make sure that we were living up to the standards that it was living for us. Her, her restrictions had to do with female pollution,
2: so, so Kala would tell us if, if I was in the menstrual hut, he would make sure that we understood that uh, if, you know, that I could not touch a, um, something that had been killed, uh, some meat, uh, and, and cook it for Rich, or certainly not for him, that, that there were restrictions having to do with food and cooking and where I could sit and what I could do and so on. So he watched over that very carefully. But the other person who was really, really important to us uh, was Nye, Nye, um for several reasons. One is that as the oldest woman in that part of Saramapa, that village and the surrounding villages, and as the older sister of the Supreme Chief, she uh, had a status that meant that people would come to her for every possible kind of um, problem. Uh, you know, a, a difficult pregnancy, or a marital problem, or a, a, a ritual problem, and so on. So that a lot, a, a lot of important things happened in front of her house, and that's where we live. We our houses faced each other right in front. And she started out by being terrified of having these two white people living in her village. Um, we only learned later how scared she was how she would go to the ancestor shrine and and pray that we wouldn't kill her and so on. And with time, we became very, very close. Um, Her relationship with Rich was a ritualized husband-wife. My my relationship with her was a playful co-wife. We called each other uh, by the term, it's like a playful co-wife. And um, by the time we had been there uh, for even just six months or so, she and I became very close, and she shared things with me that uh, were very, very touching. I and mean, she once showed me an object that she said must never be shown to anyone else except. It, it, it was a, it's like a sex toy. Actually, it was a, a beaded belt that um, that every woman has for tactile pleasure during sex. And she said, you know, nobody can see this. And when I died. Buried in my coffin with me, but I can show it to you because you should know. You know, she understood that we wanted to understand everything about her life. Um, so it was a very touching relationship, um, very different from our relationship with her brother Paula.
0: And after we left uh, at the end of the first two years, of our first two years in Samaka, uh, when we were back uh, at Yale, my first job. And I died, and she was buried. Uh, her body was carried to the cemetery uh, in the bottom of our personal canoe. That's what she had wanted. So we were there.
2: The other thing that she was very concerned about was that she she figured that I was old enough to get pregnant, and I wasn't pregnant. And she, that concerned her a great deal. She said, You know, after, after I die, I'm going to be the um, what do you call it, the spiritual genitor the spiritual janitor in the conception of your child. I, I, because Sarmakas see conception as um, being done by the man, the woman, and the uh, spiritual participant. And so she said, "I will, I will play that role for you because I really want
1: you to have children." These relationships sound really fascinating, and one of the things that's really interesting about them is the ways that you, in the book as you tell it, navigate um, the the questions of belief and possession and ritual. Uh, and I'm wondering what your approach was when writing about these. And I've had this question. Uh, about with other texts that you've written as well how do you situate yourselves in relation to beliefs and practices and and did that change over time as you learned more about the ways that people thought about the world
2: are are you asking whether we
1: believed or well I, i'm i'm curious as to how you um how you the process of writing about it actually and the process of thinking about it because um to me your texts are uh, the most compelling in in the ways that you manage to um explain what people believe and not merely sort of orientalize what what they're what they're doing
0: it's it's i think it's pretty simple we we always felt and still today, when we go to French Guiana, feel that um, when we were going into Saint territory, let's say we went to the city for four or five days, which we did every few months to buy certain supplies. Uh, when we came back, when when we passed the last the beginning of uh, of western territory, toward the city, um, we left Saamaka thinking behind and we became our normal western selves. When we went back up the river, when we crossed the first waterfall, um, we went to another world and it was a world which was filled with spirits that lived in trees and rocks and uh, that possessed people. And that talked to us and we could talk to them. And uh, the reality of that was patent. And uh, if I think of a much more recent uh, more recent experiences in French Guiana, which I talked about in the book called Travels with Toy, um, he was a man who was often possessed by a particular spirit. We talked to you know, on a daily basis when we were with him, talked to us, who knew us, just the way his brother knew us or his wife. And um, it's not a question of, you know, whether you believe in it or whether you don't. Or um, As far as we were concerned, uh, the way I like to think of it is that when we're with people who act this way and think this way, um, we do too. And um, so that we've always tried to write about this, not say from the point of view of or of many anthropologists who uh, you know talk about whether it's uh, you know, use psychoanalytic sort of explanations of what's going on in spirit possession or whatever, but rather mm-hmm. simply talk about it. I, as accepting it. The same way that I... In other words, when I talked to Toy's brother who had a spirit that mm-hmm. uh, that began in the 18th century who witnessed a lot of 18th century events that are very important to Samakas, this spirit that is now in his man's head uh, witnessed you know, what happened in 1755. Certain events that a lot of people have told me about and I've read about in the archives and so on. He was there, and he tells me things. I can talk to him about things that happened then. And that book, I simply uh, record or translate uh, what he was telling me, what our conversations were like, because he was really um, And I let the reader judge
1: what the reader wants. To, uh, I think that that's actually the key. Is that you simply? Well, you don't simply. It's not simple. Obviously, it's very complicated. But you write about it um, rather than sort of offering a big sort of theoretical framework. It's just is it is what it is, and it, and that that for me makes it very very compelling.
2: I think it's a kind of total acceptance.
1: I yeah. Mean. Yeah, that really comes through, I think, in the writing, and I think that that's that's just um, I don't know. I, I'm always drawn to to that to that.
0: Our, our our idea is to try to help the reader of our books um, who's somewhere else in the world and who's never had these experiences um, understand and feel something of of, of what it's like to. Talk to a particular kind of warrior god uh, who's talking about something that has to Yeah. Um, rather than try to explain you know, some you know, what might be happening, we're simply trying to uh, allow someone else to share an experience.
1: Yeah. So another thing um, along those lines. Um, that that's that struck me is the way that the book moved between moments of sort of absolute quotidian detail there are children playing there are chores and then suddenly there are these moments of high drama um, or tragedy or kind of explosive situations and the the ways that those are they sit together um, and they sort of juxtaposed against one another Um, I found that fascinating
2: i i think it's a true reflection of what life was like in in the somaka village i mean the, the idea that children are playing and you know ordinary things are going on, but then uh all kinds of uh uh, uh highly dramatic things happen with gods
1: and spirits and
2: i mean that's that's the way life was
0: there.
1: Yeah, that's that's um, that's conveyed really clearly. And another question I had actually was um, with regards to the women and the gardens. And you talk about the ways they go to the gardens and they are these places of sort of harmony and and peace and escape a little bit. And you, you talk about them as a way to escape from the stresses of village life. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what those stresses were. Why was it stressful for women to be in to be living in, in or to be in these villages,
2: well, the social problems that there are are worked out in the villages. And when women go off to their camps, they're with uh, sisters and sisters-in-law. They're not with co-wives. They're not. They're not in the same company. They also don't really have to behave the same way that they do in villages. They, you know, they can be extremely casual in their their clothes and they. It's also a place where there is abundant food. The, uh, the men come and uh, hunt in forest, and they have all their garden produce and so on. So it's a place that women feel relaxed and comfortable in. Often when a woman uh, has her period and she's supposed to go off to the menstrual hut, she'll say, no, I'd rather you know, take my canoe and paddle up to my garden camp and, and be there since I'm not you know, I'm I'm not, uh in the village I'm not allowed to do a whole lot of things, so why not go up to the the garden camp with my sisters and uh, relax? Um it it was uh it's it's really beautiful to be up in a garden camp. I mean the, the several times that, that uh we went to work. Um, there's something very, very special about being in the middle of the forest. Um with, with uh, all kinds of garden produce around and, and hunting and so on. It's, it's a wonderful environment.
0: And in the villages, there uh, are very strong social responsibilities of different sorts at different times. Um, people interact with each other. When you wake up in the morning, it's... But normally, you go and you. These are villages of say 200 people, 150 people, something like that, and uh, some are larger. But normally, uh, you wake up and you go around to every other house in the village and ask people how they have slept and say good morning. So everyone knows what everyone else is doing, and where they've slept, and how they've slept, and, uh, they, of course, they, these are polygynous, this is a polygynous society, and men move around a lot, uh, there's a lot of tension between co-wives, most men, when we were there, had two or three wives, co-wives have a lot of tension among them, that all takes place in the villages, um, as Sally suggested. Um, There are ritual obligations Um, when almost every day someone is sick, there's there's some series of problems, there are deaths, there are all sorts of uh, bad things happening. And for that, people get together and they go to the ancestor shrine and little groups and they have obligations to pray together and to do rituals together in order to make things right again, to cure people, uh, to fix something uh, in the spirit world that's been disturbed, and so on. To do divination together of one sort or another, to find out the reason why so-and-so has a toothache, and then do something about it. So there are always things to do in the village. Um, and, and
2: those are not things that are um, taken care of in the garden camps. But they
1: were really just in the villages so it it sounds it's it's such a fascinating rendition of a life that's sort of that's very dense and very busy and almost performative in that in that way and the and the camps are these places of escape where none of none of those obligations um apply and the fact that they can go back and forth i don't know i i found that really really fascinating. Um so towards the end the book becomes quite reflective and you you talk about your decision not to go back in in response to threats from the military government but also the ways that the writing um emerged from that and the ways that you continued to do fieldwork uh and I'm wondering at the end you also talk about the way um you've become intertwined with the telling of the place so now the the stories that you tell are also um Have become part of the history and vice versa. Um, So, and I'm wondering if if that's what you imagined 50 odd years ago when you first started working there.
0: No, I think we had no idea, you know, 50 years ago what was going to happen with with our lives and theirs.
2: One uh, situation that we find ourselves in now, which I, I think we would never have predicted, is that. We are becoming a resource for the children of Sarmakas who have moved to Fresh Guiana and have grown up speaking Sarmaka but not living in, you know, not experiencing the life of villages as we did in the 60s. And they sometimes even email us with questions about uh, certain kinds of, um, you know, life rights or um, What was it like when this and that and the other thing, um, high school students will uh, will get in touch with this and say they want to understand certain things about what life was like because it's their heritage, but they have never lived it. I mean, these are people who have grown up in, in the towns of French Guiana who have sometimes visited a few times to the villages on the river and feel that that's their identity, but they don't really, they haven't lived it, they don't know it, and um, they turn to us sometimes to ask the questions that they have in mind. It's, it's a funny kind of relationship.
0: Um, it's one of the reasons that during the last 20 years or so, um, we have worked to have um, probably a dozen of our books translated into French, because about a third of has now live in French Guiana, The kids all go to French schools, they speak French, and uh, those that are interested read. So uh, having our books in French for that educated Salmaqa population uh, is important to us. And it's from those younger people that we get lots of questions on Facebook and by email, um, we also ended up uh, translating two of our books into the Samaka language. They're the first books ever published in Samaka. And um, one was uh, is a translation of my early book, First Time, about Samaka early history, The Wars Against the Whites, which the Samaka people asked us to translate, and uh, the Samaka people bought 3,000 copies of that book and distributed it in their schools and in their villages. So that made us feel very good about being able to give something back.
2: And it was so much fun to do that we decided to do a second book, which was... A book called Two Evenings in Samarka, uh a book of folktales. So we now have two books in Sarmaka. And one of the nice things about that, um, we had to work out an orthography uh, to decide you know, whether to use accents and how to render a language that hadn't been written before. And uh, we came up with something that uh, Sarmakas can read. Thank you. Um, they have no trouble reading it, so uh, it's very
0: accessible. It's, and it's also an orthography that can, because it doesn't have any accents, uh, it can be used on Facebook or any other social media. And some authors are now using that a good day. So that makes us feel good.
1: So it's a story of the production and circulation of all kinds of knowledge through all kinds of media and including written and oral language. I mean, it's really a it's much more than than writing books what you guys are doing, I think.
0: Yeah, it's all and uh, another uh, piece of it has to do with photographs and drawings um because younger some others are well known for their artistry, their uh, visual arts and men are woodcarvers and women do all sorts of fancy sewing. And our books starting I guess with the big catalog that we did in nineteen eighty of an exhibit uh African uh, American Arts of the Strong and Rainforest. Afro American Arts of the Strong and Rainforest that California put out. Um, was we gave lots of copies of that to to Sapacas, and there are now the grandchildren of the carvers who are represented in that book who use that book as a kind of model of inspiration for the carvings that they do in French Guiana today, which they sell to tourists so um and the the pictures that we published in various books that uh are also used uh, were also used by a forger, for instance. That's the guy we wrote a novel about, the legal variations that Harvard published. And that had to do with images that we had published and which were then taken over by a Frenchman who decided to forge uh, like an art and sell
2: it. We've always been really struck by the fact that you have no control over what's done with your books once you write them; that they go out and used in different ways. There is one example where uh, we published a picture of a textile. I guess it was a shoulder cape, patchwork textile, um, and we are always careful to put the name of the person who sewed it. So, in this case, it was uh, sewn. By a woman named Pepina, and we uh, recently discovered um, an artist in the Netherlands who is doing what he calls a Pepina series, and it's uh, paintings. It's a it's a wall. There's a wall painting. There, you know, he's done it in different forms, and they're all called after the name of this woman from the early 20th century, whose uh, shoulder cape uh, appeared in one of our books, which he kind of latched onto and. They had the subject of a whole series of artworks. <laughs> yeah. So you it.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, one last question about that. Have you um, received responses about the book from people in it who are still alive? I think um, you mentioned that there are a few. No. Um, we don't
0: know that anyone in Estonia has read the book or has a way of getting the book. There's only one bookstore in Suriname And uh, though we've tried very hard to get the book in there, the the only way anyone can buy our books in Suriname is by knowing about the book and going to the store in the capital and asking, you know, and putting down money and pre-ordering it. Um, We know that with our books in French, and people, some, um, sometimes when someone's going over into French Guiana, which often happens, with it's only three hours away on a road and quick canoe ride. When someone is going over, someone who can read might say, "Will you get me a copy of such and such a book?" Because there, our books are in French, are sold in French Guiana, but otherwise. Um, other than when we used to give out books, when we could go to Sona, and we would bring lots of copies of it, say, first time, um, we really couldn't do anything. So, uh, excuse me. Uh, so, in fact, we, we've had no no reactions to this book, really from
1: anyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh... I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, one last question before we go: um, Can you say anything about what you are working on right now?
0: Yes. Uh, what we're working on, about 15 years ago mm-hmm. in 2003, we published a book in French. It's the only book that we wrote directly in French. It's called uh, Les Maures, the Maroons, in French piano. Yeah. and we wrote it for school teachers for lawyers, for doctors, for nurses, for prison guards, for everyone in French Guiana who deals with Maroons every day. Maroons are one-third of the population of the country. Um, we rule for them because they have no idea who these people are. There are some Makas, Jukas, Pamakas, Alukos, 4 different Maroon groups. They speak different languages. They have different histories. They're quite different, one from another. But from a French point of view, or a French Creole point of view, they're just a bunch of you know primitive, uh black people, and so we wrote this book for them uh, in order to talk about the history of each of these groups and French Guiana and uh, the different languages they speak and the different sort of employment niches they have in the country, and so on. But the alternative students in the university. Uh, of French Guiana in Cayenne are Maroons. But, uh, teachers, professors don't know who they are. So, we wrote this book for them 15 years ago and it turns out that there have been tremendous changes in the last 15 years for Maroons in Guiana in French Guiana. So, um, so, uh, we have, we went back to Fransciana during January and February this year, did uh, a number of weeks of field work. We went to every part of Fransciana where Maroons are living. We did a lot of demographic work, and we did a lot of talking to people. And we're bringing out a new edition of this book, which, again, will only be in French, except we talked about it last week in the Netherlands. We gave a couple of lectures, and the Dutch publisher says they want to do a Dutch edition and sell it in Suriname because people in Suriname don't know much about neighboring French piano. So it will be in French and Dutch, but presumably not in English because we don't imagine that people cannot see it or really care very much about the French Guiana. It's really a service book that tries to. Teach people who these in French Guiana who these people are. And it has lots of pictures, it's printed in color, and it only costs 15 euros, so $17. So it's something that every school teacher, every lawyer, doctor, nurse buys at the airport when they come into French Guiana. Most of those people are white French people, the young ones, on their first teaching assignment, that sort of thing, because French Yama is a very far away place for most French people. Um, so it's a book that we think is very important. It's, it's maybe our best-selling book. Yeah. It's
2: the, our only book that's sold in the airport.
0: <laughs> anyway.
2: <laughs>
0: so so, yeah, so, so that, that's what we've been working on. Uh, for the last few months
1: and it will
0: be coming out later this year
1: that sounds really um important and these people are lucky to have you uh guiding them through i suppose um thank you so much for talking with me today i really enjoyed this conversation
0: great thank you we have enjoyed it too